uh, I, I moved to the Midlands from this area, and they warned me, and they said, you know, Midlands is a very hard area. And it was. A lot of people are opposed to the gospel in the Midlands. Uh, a lot of false religion in the Midlands as well, so working through that. Um, and yet God works, and people are saved. And then I moved to London. Do you know what they told me in London? Dagenham's a hard area. It's a hard area. And it was. Working class Dagenham with all it had, uh, and uh, the, the troubles that came from, from communities, etc., the, the troubles with youth and all that were part of that. It was a hard area, but people were saved. People responded to the gospel, and God brought people into his kingdom. And it, but it was a hard area. And uh, I went to Shropshire. Shropshire's a hard area. It is it really? It looks mainly hills and sheep uh, here. But, but again, the same issues are there because the issues are in the hearts of people. And the issues are described for us in the word of God as things that we wrestle with but also powers that we wrestle with. So then it's not an easy area. And then I came back to the Wirral. Do you know what they told me when I came back to the Wirral? <laughs> Wirral's a hard area, yeah? yeah. It's as if the whole world is a hard place, isn't it? As if that's the case. And maybe there is some area that is ultra-receptive to the gospel. And thank God for that. If there are countries, uh, places like Iran at the moment, where people are, are flocking into the kingdom of God. Uh, but for most of the Western world, it is a hard area. I want to look at why that might be. So let's look at Ephesians 6. Let's read what Paul says to a church, a church in Ephesus. And he says this. He uses the word finally a lot, so be warned, but this is probably the finally, finally. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord... And in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. So that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against the rulers. Against the authorities. Against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The nature of the conflict here is described by the Apostle Paul to the church. Interestingly enough, we, we don't live in a particularly militaristic age. And that's probably increasingly true over the past 20 or 30 years. 
Uh, so a lot of people are embarrassed by some of the, the metaphors and similes in the Bible uh, to soldiers and to battle. But they are given to us in the Word of God, and they are helpful, and they are encouraging. And here, we're asked to look one stage further, and we're told that we must stand against the schemes of the devil. So I want to start by saying, firstly, the nature of our warfare is spiritual warfare and not just physical. And that's hard for us to get the hang of because often the the troubles that we face are physical things. So it might be that if you go to school and you say you're a Christian, it might be somebody who makes fun of you. That will be a person who will do that. could even be a teacher. It was with me. And there'll be people who will ridicule you for what you believe. So there's a physical face to all that. And then it might be that uh, also there are are other struggles. There are are struggles that are internal struggles. Um, In Ephesians 2, it's a little bit earlier on, but it's interesting that it it talks about the the, the struggles that we face. And it it talks about uh, the spirit that's at work of those who are disobedient, talks about the devil and his work, and then talks about the flesh, and then talks about following the world. So it looks at the world around us and it says the world around us is a lost place because people are lost because, because the world is not in submission to God. And, and the, the, the vision that we've got in Scripture and the clear picture we've got in Scripture is of a lost world. It's not just that it, it needs tweaking. It's broken and it needs saving. And that's the picture we've got in Scripture. We see it right at the beginning in the Garden of Eden, where there's Adam and Eve, and in comes the serpent. And the serpent encourages a doubt of God. Did God really say? And then the serpent doubts the goodness of God and the word of God. You know, you won't die when this happens. He, He knows what will really happen. That's why he's keeping this from you. And all the time, there's a deception that comes in. And in that deception, Adam and Eve... Both take the fruits, and as they take the fruit, they realize that they're in trouble. They realize they're naked. They hide from God. They're ashamed for the first time. To come into the presence of God and be ashamed because you know that he is holy and you are not. Ever had that experience? Thank God there's a Savior. Thank God there is a Savior. Where would we be without Jesus Christ? There is this holy God. We cannot approach him. On our own. We're part of this broken, fallen world. The world, the flesh, and the devil. So that if it's, if it's not just that um, the world around us is broken and, and the, the, there's pride and there's warfare and there's selfishness and greed and all that, and we see it around us, don't we? And we, we, we weep for this broken world sometimes. If you, like me, have got kids growing up in this broken world, you might weep for them too. It's a tough place uh, to be growing up. It's a tough area of the world. It's a tough area of the world. I wouldn't like to explain to you in the Ukraine particularly how it's particularly tough for us here in the Wirral. Um, but it's a tough area. But then if that wasn't enough, there's also internal issues. So there's the flesh. So there's a civil war that's going on because in the heart, uh, there's a rebellion against God that's at a heart level. And even for Christians, Paul describes it like this, the good that I would do that I don't do. Instead, the evil that I don't want to do, I ended up, end up doing that instead. Wretched man that I am. Because I'm a civil war. It's not enough that I'm battling out there. I'm also battling in here. 
And if that's not enough, I'm battling against an opponent who is a spiritual opponent. I'm not wrestling against flesh and blood, and we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, says Paul. We're wrestling against spiritual powers and authorities, things that you may not even be able to see, and you've got to wrestle against them. Powers that are in place that we perhaps don't understand very much about, and we're called to wrestle against those things and take a stand. And you might ask yourself, well, given the nature of this warfare, uh, firstly, uh, we need to wake up as Christians, because this isn't a game of cricket. The battle for people's souls is life and death. It is heaven and hell. It is life and, it is, uh, and light, and it's, it's darkness and it's destruction. And, and these are serious things. These are not small things. These are big issues. So when I am praying for the people of Rock Ferry to be saved, or the people of the Wirral, 300-odd thousand people here in the Wirral, to be saved... I'm recognizing that without Christ, they are as lost as I would be without Christ. And let me tell you, I would be lost without Jesus. And if you haven't seen that, then you need to understand again what is going on uh, that Paul is alluding to here. What's going on in our own souls? We need a savior because we are truly lost, because we are dead in transgression and sin. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who don't believe, so they can't see the light of the gospel of Christ. We're living in a world in which there is spiritual blindness, and therefore there's something that needs to be done about that. And you might say to yourself, well, there's nothing I can do about it. But Paul says, for a Christian, there is something we can do, because we can be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. One writer in scripture puts it, he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. I wonder, do you really believe that? The one who is at work in his people by his spirit is greater than the one who opposes him. Or to put it simply, God is sovereign. And we need to believe that, not just as an academic theory out there, but because it is revealed to us in Scripture, and because that is where we get our power from. Without God, we we are lost. Without his power, without his grace, without his saviour, without his love and his mercy, we are lost. But with Christ, we are able to be strong in his strength. I, I love the story. Do you know the story of David um, and Goliath? It's one of those kids' stories, isn't it, they tell, and it's, it's interesting. They leave the last bit out normally because it's a bit brutal. Um, but the, the story of David and Goliath, and there's this huge mountain of a man defying the people of God. And David stands up and says, who does he think he is? And you look at David, and you say, well, who do you think you are? But the point is David isn't thinking about who he is. He's thinking that this man is defying the armies of God. And David's words to Goliath are really, really interesting because he says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the strength of God Almighty. Actually, in the name of God Almighty, I should say. In other words, there's your weapons. Your weapons are your spear, your, your physical power and your prowess. My weapon is the name of God Almighty, and that is greater. He that's in us is greater than he that's in the world. And David says, today, 
God will give you into my hands. And of course, that's exactly what happens. Because he is greater. He that's in us is greater than he that is in the world. And Paul makes this point here and says, in this struggle, you cannot stand in your own strength. Those of you who are high achievers, I don't put myself in your category. I wouldn't dare to for a moment. At heart, I'm a lazy person. Something that God has had to deal with me through for many, many years. Um, but if you're one of those high achievers and, you, and by your strength you can accomplish and have accomplished great things, praise God for that. That's wonderful. But there are some things that you cannot accomplish by human strength alone. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And I want you to notice here that the purpose here in this conflict, and it's used three times the word, is to stand. We are to stand in the day of conflict, to hold our ground. In other words, we do not run away when it gets difficult. That's often a temptation, isn't it? Things are too hard, I'll run away. Maybe I'll find somewhere else. Maybe I'll find someone else. Maybe I'll find another church. Maybe I'll find a new start. I'll run away and I'll run away and run away. Here, we are to stand. And particularly against the world, the flesh, and the devil. When trouble comes our way, whether it is untruths, whether it's a world that's opposed to the things of God, whether it's temptation and the lusts of the flesh, or whether it's simply a knowledge uh, that the enemy is at work. Whatever it is, we are to find our strength and we are to take a stand. So the purpose is that we might stand, and God says effectively, and Paul is, is, is at pains to say this, you do not stand in your own strength. You stra- stand in what God has provided. Now, I, I know a lot of work is done on the armor of God of uh, which piece goes where and how significant all that is. Um, I'm not sure that that's the best approach here. Um, I think probably there is some help in that. But I I do think it's interesting because in in Paul's day, of course, Paul was a a Roman citizen. And he knew all about the Roman arms. He saw the armies as they would come and go. He saw the legions come and go and the centurions and the centuries come and go. He saw the city guard, which is sort of like a a watered-down version of the legions, and and saw what it was like. So the Roman Empire had occupied a a large part of the world. And in effect, it's it's interesting. I come from Chester. There's still uh, remains of Roman civilization in Chester. And you're thinking that went from there to North Africa and further. It's just incredible, isn't it, that an empire could spread so far. Uh, But there was a lot of military might in that, and the soldiers were a large part of that. So these illustrations would be well understood, even by those who saw the Romans as an occupying army. People who just wouldn't go away that you wanted to go away. And Paul uses this illustration and says, take up the whole armour of God. Uh, Anyone remember the song, um, uh, Soldiers of Christ, Arise and Put Your Armour On? Any of you older than me? Okay, don't, don't, don't put your hand up. I don't want to know you're that old. Um, and take to arm you for, your, for the fight, the panoply of God. It's a great word, isn't it? The panoply of God. It just means all the armor. Pan is all. 
clear his armour. So just take off all the armour of God. And the point uh, Paul is making here is, it's not just one of these things. It's all of these things. You take up everything that God has provided so that you can stand in this world in which we live. And they are listed, of course, the belt of truth. Take the truth of God. The breastplate of righteousness. The righteousness of God. What comes next? Your shoes fitted with the gospel of peace. The readiness given by the gospel of peace. Um, then the shield of faith. To extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. The helmet of salvation. And the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Now the reason I say it's hard to divide these things is because the righteousness of God comes by faith. So you've got those things both in play. It's all part of the gospel of God, which is where your shoes are, are shared with. All part of the truth of God, which is there. And, uh, of course, all contained within the word of God. And if you want to put it more specifically, about the living word, the word become flesh, about the Lord Jesus. So it's hard to divide these things. But I think what Paul is saying here really clearly is that we are to be Christ-centered and we are to rely on the strength that he provides and not in our own strength. And, of course, there are illustrations that would look at this. So in terms of the, the feet and the gospel of peace, um, I find it an, an interesting one because, in one sense, the, the, the sandals the Romans had enabled them to move quickly over difficult areas. But they also, um, I'm a bit of a, a geek historian, so they also had little um, uh, nails in them at the bottom that, that uh, sort of like went through and enabled you to have a grip in difficult places. So you have to think of them like ridges on them, but very much more basic. And so you can imagine you're standing in a line, and your enemy stands against you, and you're there, and you know that if you run, they'll chase you down. You'll have no shields, you'll have no defense. The first people who run will be the first people who get destroyed. And you're standing against them. And then as the shield pressed against your shield and as the swords go into battle, all this happens and you feel the pressure of all that. The Romans could put their feet in the ground, feel the grip that they had. So basically, it's like, um, for those of you who are into football, it's like having studs on your shoes. And they could push back. And they could stand firm against the enemy. It's interesting that the gospel of peace enables us to go, but also enables us to stand. Likewise, in the Roman empires, it was interesting that they, they had this, uh, this, these huge shields. Uh, they were so big that they would say, um, you know, you, you take your shield with you everywhere, and if necessary, you're carried back on your shield if you die in combat. So it was seen as straight. We used the stretchers as well at the end, and they were these huge shields. And the Roman shields would lock up, and they just had short swords that would go through, and they were cut. And because the shields were so locked, it was so hard to get through because they were united and because they stood together, and there were superior numbers that would fall to them, and there were superior fighters that would fall to them, just because you couldn't get through this wall of shields, because they were linked together, and they were united for a cause, and because they stood together. Paul is using this illustration, and he is saying, in the strength of God, you make your stand. not saying it just to an individual, he's saying it to a church. You stand together, in the strength of God. You, as believers, stand in the truth of Jesus Christ. You, as a church, take hold of the righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ, that transforms us from the inside. 
So that not only through the cross are believers declared righteous because of what God has done, but then God works by His Spirit internally and transforms us. So we start to reflect that more and more. This is the one thing I love about being a Christian, that it's a, it's a bright path. Transformed, changed from glory to glory. How's it put in um, Proverbs? The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. And when your chains are gone, and when your eyes are opened, and when God is at work in you by his Spirit, you start to see things you've never seen before. And your, life, and your life transforms, and you start to love things that you had never loved before. I love the Word of God. I can remember a time when I didn't, but I can remember a time when I did. I love the Word of God. It's a message from my Heavenly Father to me. It's a message uh, from His people to my soul. It's a message by which the Spirit communicates His truth to His church. Why wouldn't we love it? Why wouldn't we love it? The Gospel of Peace gives us readiness. The shield of faith extinguishes the flaming arrows of the evil one. I can remember when I was first converted a number of years ago, I would have been 17. So you can work that out. No, please don't. Uh, It's scary. But I I can remember that when I was first converted and uh, I uh, discovered, uh, well, for the first time I realized I was a sinner. It never really occurred to me. I was a very religious sinner, so I thought I was all right. But at 17, for the first time dawned on me that I would not be able to make my own way to heaven, given how much I'd read, how much I understood, or how much I'd done. And my only path to salvation was Christ. When I realized I was truly lost at 17, I came to Christ. I ran to Christ, really. There was no other hope for me. And the gospel saved me, thank God, from being a proud religious person to being a sinner saved by grace. It was a wonderful moment for me. And uh, Charmaine was there just afterwards, so she will remember some of this. Um, but uh, soon after that, I, I had these terrible dreams. So bad that I could not sleep with the light off. 17, 18 years old, couldn't sleep with the light off. I don't know why they came, uh, but they came. And I remember thinking, what am I going to do here? And I, and I remember writing on the wall of my bedroom, Romans 8, uh, you know that bit that says, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of Christ. I remember having that, just neither angels nor demons, life nor death. And going to bed and thinking, whatever happens tonight, I am in the hands of my God, and I either believe that or I don't. And what happened as a result of that is I began to sleep with the light off in absolute peace. And from that day onwards, people say to me, how do you sleep so well? I sleep so well because I've got a gift, because I know that I'm in the hands of God. And life or death, I belong to him. People say, how can you go on to Oak Hall? You can sleep on the buses. I say, oh, it's a gift. Something that I learned to do in a way that's true. In a way it isn't. I learned to put my trust in the almighty God. So when I go to bed, I don't worry about the world and all that's in it. I place it in the hands of my heavenly father. And I know that he cares and he loves. And thank God he can move where we can't move. I have no idea where I am on time. So I'm going to make this very quickly to close. Uh, It's interesting that when we come to these things and taking up the armor of God, the helmet of salvation... And the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Be ready with a word from God in every situation. You never know what he's going to use. My amazing work, Dave, bless him. <clears throat> I was um, on a microscope uh, looking at steel samples. It all went wrong, and the samples 
burst apart, and I had to start again. And he was with me. And he made one observation. He just said, you don't swear much, do you? And I said, no, not much. I don't, Dave. And he said, why don't you swear? And uh, being a coward, I said, well, it's, uh, I don't really see the need for it. And I thought, no, it's more than that. Let's be honest here. A bit of truth. I said, it's, it's because I'm a Christian. I said, I actually love God. I think my words matter, and I want them to matter for him. He said, well, what do you mean you're a Christian? So as I'm sat there with a microscope, I'm explaining the good news of Jesus Christ. And I shared with him what it meant to be part of a broken world, how God had intervened in the person of Jesus, uh, that by his life and his sacrificial death and his glorious resurrection, he has provided a way by which my sin can be taken away, paid for in full, and I can experience his blessing and his grace, and I can live under his lordship and rule and the blessings that come from that. And I finished the sample, and I was just explaining the end of this, bring it to conclusion, and Dave said, that's interesting. And I didn't hear from Dave again for three years. I went to Bible college, came back from Bible college, and Dave is in a Christian meeting, Christian youth meeting. And what's going on, Dave? He said, well, I thought about what you said, and I became a Christian. I'm here, I'm part of the local church, brought some of the young kids here to hear the word of God tonight. And, uh, I'm thinking, and then he's thinking, how many other people? Just a word. Will God break through that darkness? God break through that blindness. And this is important because if we really believe that, that minds of people are blinded to the gospel, then the truth is the medium that God by his spirit will use to open their eyes. And you don't have to make it palatable. It's not your job to try and make excuses. It's your job to proclaim that truth and believe that that is the medium that the Spirit will use. Once you start trying to mess around with it, that's the moment when you're diminishing the work of the Spirit. Because you're saying, if I can make it so that this person can understand, if I can do it so that, so that I, I think it's acceptable, that's enough. Just preach the gospel in its simplicity. If there's one thing I could tell you over 35 years as a Christian, it would be that. Preach the gospel in its simplicity and see what God does. See what God does. It is incredible. And whilst we preach the gospel, the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, we proclaim Christ, pray in the Spirit at all times. I could go on about this, but you've got a week of prayer ahead. Wouldn't it be wonderful if rather than me talking to you about the importance of prayer, you decided you were just going to do it? Because if there is an enemy that you can't fight, that can be fought in the strength of God then how much do we pray in the Spirit at all times? How much do we pray? How much Paul actually says, pray for me that, my, my, that I might declare the gospel fearlessly as I should. Pray for the church. Pray for these things. Pray because you in your strength can't do it. But God can do what you cannot do. I wonder how many people that we've prayed for have come to faith. I'll share this as a last story just to encourage you. But um, this concerns a, a lady in my home group called Jackie. Uh, she goes to the church now. Uh, and Jackie was, um, became a believer with her husband, both of them baptized. And then she said, oh, there's a, a, a lady, a friend of mine, who lives on this road. I'd love her to become a Christian. Could we pray for her? And we did. We prayed for her. And that, that, that was it. Nothing happened. I didn't even know where she lived. A friend didn't get into contact with her. Nothing happened for about a year. About a year later, I found out there was a man in my street reading the Bible. And he couldn't put it down. Well, that's interesting. 
Uh, I got to him, he'd read it through six times, on his seventh time through. And I'm like, where are you at with this? And he's explaining all that he's understood about uh, God and about Christ and about the kingdom of God and the purposes of God. And he's so close to salvation. And he's just saying, is it through the death of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus? I'm confused. The early writers seem to, refer to reference his resurrection, but Paul seems very much about his death. So uh, we got together and we said, let's, um, let's read Romans together. And him being him, read Acts, Romans, Corinthians, we just read all of it together. And then he said, I've got it. It's through his death and his resurrection that we're made right with God. It's through both of those things. And uh, he gave his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, three of his sons gave their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he and one of them were baptized. His wife gave his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. They came to a home group soon afterwards. And his wife is the one that we prayed for all those years ago. How does that work? How does that work? What's God doing in these situations? And if we really believe that, how much we need to pray. Um, and let me say to you, while you're praying, pray for me this year. Because I want to visit every home on my street and share the good news of Jesus with them. And give an opportunity to come and learn about that. And it may be 80 houses. It's not a massive amount. It may be that I only get three people or one person or no people. Maybe that I get 20 people. I don't know what to do with it. Um, but do pray for me that the gospel, um, the opportunities might come to share the good news of Jesus. And if I can't do that, I'll do the one next to it, and the one next to it, and the one next to it, and keep going until people in Rock Ferry respond to the gospel. Because I believe this. And I believe that those things where Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers, that the gospel brings light. And that means that you and I, in his strength and his power, can be light bringers. Who are you going to share the gospel with this year? 2023. He who plants much. Isn't it going to work like that? As a man sows, so he reaps. How much planting are you going to do this year? How much are you going to see? How, are you going to see what God can do in your situations? Start with your family. Start with your friends. Start with your area. Jerusalem, Judea, ends of the earth. And see where it takes you. And trust God to do what you cannot do. I'm going to pray. Sorry if I've gone on too long, but just pray for a moment and hand over to Mark. Father, we thank you for this good news uh, that you have given us because you have given us a saviour. We thank you that this time of year we can think particularly about that, about uh, the sacrifice he made in coming to this world in all its brokenness. But also we can dwell on his perfection and his glory, and his beauty, and his wonderful works, and his wise words, and then his perfect sacrifice, and his glorious resurrection, and the life that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Father, for those of us who put our trust in the Lord Jesus. We have found something of that transforming uh, life of God, and the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that he that's in us is greater than he that is in the world. And we pray, Lord, you give us the courage not just to believe that, but to act upon it in this year ahead. Father, as we come to a week of prayer, may we truly devote ourselves to praying in the Spirit about all kinds of things and developing a reliance on you and your grace and your power. And we pray, Lord God, that the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, might be close to our minds and our hearts and our mouths as we proclaim Christ the risen Lord. 
We thank you that he is worthy. We thank you for his death for our sins and glorious resurrection. We thank you we can remember these things with joy in our hearts. And we pray that will be our experience today as we come together in the name of Jesus. Amen.